I love that song. <laughs> Took us back, I think, to uh, probably two or three decades ago when Michael W. Smith wrote that and uh, doing youth ministry and singing those songs. Isn't it amazing how when you start singing some of those songs, uh, you think you have to look at the screen and then you realize you don't. It's just in you. Um, it's hard for me these days to ever talk and not say something about my dad. Uh, he's 89, he's at Arbor Gardens, and he would be in a class like this if he could. But um, we took him to his sister's uh, funeral. She was 92 when she died, and uh, so we took him, and he didn't recognize family. He, he didn't fully know, I don't think, where he was at exactly. Um, but I'm, he's my brother John, me, then Lydia, and all of a sudden I'm thinking, who is singing Amazing, like, who's singing Amazing Grace next to me? And all of a sudden I look over and my dad's singing Amazing Grace. It's just, it is just in him. The Spirit's in you. He, the Spirit just comes out regardless of, well, I can't cry right at the beginning. You know? um, I always say when I come here to teach, it, it is rather surreal because there are people in this room I've known so long. And so it's a blessing. Hey, let's turn to John 6. I know we said 7. I want you to just let your eyes rest on John 6 for just a moment. And then we're going to spend our time in John 7. And we'll do this and pray. I want you to just take a look um, at some of the words of Jesus as he's speaking to his disciples. I want you to see the strength of which he speaks his words. He says in verse 56, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. Those are strong words. 58, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Not as the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on the bread will live forever. I am the bread, he's saying. And he keeps moving through this passage, and he gets all the way to around verse 67. The twelve said to him, do you want to go? He said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? Because people wanted to leave and go away. And, and do you remember what Peter said? Simon Peter answered him with these words, Lord, to whom shall we go? What? Where else would we go, Jesus? I mean, yes, what you've said we still don't fully understand. But where else would we go? I want us to think about that simple statement, and I kind of wrote it in this way. There's no other place to go but with Jesus. There's no other place. But sometimes we grow faint, and we lose confidence and trust, and we start questioning because there's a lot of people still questioning Christ. And we have to keep reminding ourselves there's no other place to go but with Jesus. And the way we remind ourselves is to look at his authority in our lives. He was speaking with authority then. He speaks now. He speaks through his word. And so we're going to remind you today about some of his statements of authority that reflect upon who he is as the great I am sent by his father. And so as we do that, I'm going to ask you just to be in chapter 7 pretty much our whole time together. So open that up, and I'm going to read it sort of in uh, stages with you, um, and then reflect on some things. We actually have four statements of authority we're going to look at. Four statements of authority. Let's see if I can make this stand up straight. All right. Um, and then we're going to end with just four implications to our lives today based on his statements of authority. So let's jump in in verse 1 as he said this. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews 
Feast of Booths was at hand, so his brothers said to him, Leave there, or leave here, and go to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. For not even his brothers believed him. Now, a couple things to recognize here is the, the Feast of Booths, also called the Tabernacles, when they would go and put the leaves over and create these kind of huts, and they would sit in there and they give thanks to God for uh, reflecting back on when their forefathers you know, wandered through the wilderness. It was a, a celebration. And his brothers, and by, what, by the way, these are not like we would say brothers today, like you're my brother, you're my brother. These were probably biological brothers. We believe that Mary must have had more children. So these are actually brothers and they're not convinced to all that he had said, all the things they've been hearing, that he was the Messiah. And so it's like they're challenging him to say, go up there and start speaking. Go up there and start doing your thing. If you are who you say you are, do that. And it's interesting that he starts out with a phrase that you'll find reminiscent of what he said in John 2 to his mother. And so this marks the first, what he's about to say, of, I would say, his authority statements. And so if you look in verse 6, and we're just going to put some of the, the writings in red, right? We're going to Jesus' words up here. So the first thing we're going to see is the authority of his time. The authority of his time. So Jesus answered his brothers, My time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to this feast. For why? For my time has not yet fully come. You go back to the wedding in Cana when his mother said to him, do you remember this? She says, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, on a lighter note, as you see this exchange between a mother and a son, she is telling her son, your time is now. You need to do this miracle, which by the way, he did do the miracle. Although it was not a public miracle, it was a private miracle that he did at this wedding. But I think the exchange is interesting. It's hard not to miss this. Imagine the mother says, he says to the mother after being told to make the wine, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. This is my favorite part. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. And it's just, <laughs> it's just like, did you hear what he just said to you, mother? <laughs> like he says his hour has not yet come. Mother's no best. She says, do whatever he tells you to do. And he told them to turn the water to wine. But we see there an example where he's saying, this is pushing back at times, and my time has not yet come to reveal, because when I do start revealing, when I do start revealing, hate is gonna come my way. The world is gonna change forever. So there's a warning in this. He says, I testify, testify about it. He's talking about the world, that its works are evil. And so he's trying to let them know that my time is not going to come. And when my time does come, people are going to hate me. The world is going to hate because I'm testifying to what is true. And so a couple of things we think about, both the world is going to hate him in general, but the Jewish leaders are going to hate him as well. So if you're taking notes, you want to add some things. The world will hate Jesus because of his testimony. That's what I said. I'm going to testify and I'm going to testify that their works are evil and no one wants to be told that your works are evil. And he does this, doesn't he? In the Bible, we see words that he used like you're an evil and adulterous generation, a brood of vipers, workers of evil. And he knew, and we know as we read it, 
that it's going to return with hatred toward him. His time has not yet come to start his earthly ministry. But then in verse 10, it says this. But after his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he also went up, not publicly, keep in mind, but in private. The Jews were looking for him at the feast and saying, where is he? And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly of him. This remains a kind of a, we would call an intervarsity conversation. Uh, it's a private conversation. About the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and he began teaching. The Jews, therefore, marveled, saying, How is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? I find it interesting that they go to what I would call sort of this religious bias, this sophistication bias, this, this academic bias, where they're looking at a carpenter who begins to speak in the temple, mind you, but he has not studied. So we can add to this that the world will hate Jesus out of religious bias. Specifically, the Jews hated Jesus out of a religious bias. It's interesting as you are looking at a passage to teach and you're reading other devotionals, sometimes the timing of things just work out. Uh, the Lord just weaves together different teachings. Um, in my devotional on the 11th of this month, I was talking about in Luke, when he's talking about beware of the scribes, he says, who like to walk around in long robes and love greetings in the marketplaces, the best seats in the synagogues. He's pointing right at the very people we're talking about here. And he's telling him to beware. This particular devotional, the author said, Jewish officials, especially the scribes, who were experts in the Jewish law, very wise, and also made copies of the scriptures by hand for use in the synagogues and to preserve the biblical text. That's what we're talking about. And he goes on to say, they, they walked around in long robes. The scribes wore these long, you would probably say ostentatious robes designed to do what? Attract attention. And Jesus condemned them. The scribes loved greetings in the marketplaces. They expected elaborate hellos. They made much of their position in society. The scribes sought out the best seats in the synagogue. And by the way, the best seats were located closest to the ark or the box in the synagogue. That's what they wanted, and that's what he is rebuking, and that's why they will hate him. And he knew this was going to happen. And it was his response to their question that leads us to the second statement of authority, and we're going to call this the authority of his words. So now he has their attention and begins to speak, and they ask this question, how is it this man is learning? Where did he get his learning? He has never studied. And then he tells them this. My teaching is not mine, but is who sent me. If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my authority. The one who speaks on his own authority seeks his own glory, but the one who seeks the glory of him who sent me is true, and in him there is no falsehood. Listen to what he's saying. It's not mine, but then he declares his relationship to God to say it's him who sent me. There's a lot wrapped up in that. But the one who sent me, first of all, I was sent, and I'm speaking now on God's authority. And he, it's interesting that he speaks about it coming from his Father. We know it's a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but Jesus will often reflect upon his sending from his Father, his teaching from his Father. I'm here to do the will of my Father. In fact, later we know that he says, I am seven times, all caps, 
We know that means I am the Lord. He speaks about his union with God. Now, as you think about this, we're thinking about kind of the source of his teaching. He says, if anyone's will is to do God's will, hang on to that. He's looking at them saying, you want to know if anyone's will is to do God's will. In other words, if, if you're with God, you're going to hear my voice and know it's from God. You will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I'm speaking on my own authority. If you're a child of God, you'll know the voice of God. Amen? If you're a child of God, you're going to know the voice of God. You're going to hear it and discern it and say, that's from the Lord. That's gospel truth. And if you're from God, if you're a child of God, you should also know falsehood. And the only way we're going to do that is by reading the Word of God. So that when we hear things on the television, when we hear speakers come in, even when we hear someone behind a pulpit in any church that we go to now or other places, we have to discern, is this from the voice of God? Is this from the Word of God? Or is this from the voice of man? And Jesus is making it clear, when I speak, I speak the words of God. You know, it's, it's interesting, too, when, when you think about just how kind of targeted this was. In John 6, he says, The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but there are some of you who do not believe. And so once again, he's speaking to the Jewish people there. And here it is. Referencing. The reason you don't understand what I'm saying is because you're not from God. We know in Scripture, he speaks about their hardened hearts. They're veiled to the truth. That they understood God, but they don't understand the triune God. And Christ was before them. That the Messiah had come. You know, it's interesting, when we were in Israel a couple of years ago, I was struck by the fact that when we had a Shabbat with an Orthodox Jewish family, that the woman said that she's never read and can't read, read the New Testament. I, I didn't know this. Her husband has studied it, but she cannot and does not know it. So imagine the disconnect there when someone tries to share the gospel with her, right? And that's one of the challenges that they have. And we want the gospel of Jesus Christ, its fullness, from Matthew to Revelation to be read by our Jewish friends around the world. We want them to see the, the coming of the Messiah. So when they hear his voice, they'll know his voice. He also says this, if you seek your own glory, your speech will be false. Think about this. If you're seeking your glory, okay, and he wasn't, then the speech is going to be found out. It's going to be about us. But if you're speaking the voice of God, the word of God, it reflects on God's glory. There's always a kind of a, a concern that any teacher of the word, preacher, evangelist has, should have. There should be this pause to go, when people leave, do they remember the voice of God? Do they remember the word of God? Or do they remember the voice and the life of the one teaching? And we don't have to look far on televangelists and different things to see they're seeking their glory, not God's glory. So when we bring it down to this level, so our when you're speaking, when you're at these tables, when you're with your family, when you're in a Bible study, are you seeking your own glory or God's glory? We're in a church where we're fortunate that I believe our teachers seek God's glory, not their own glory. Now, I'd be remiss if I didn't just kind of take a sidebar here to give an example of this. Recently, I heard about a conference, uh, unfortunately, at Andy Stanley's church in Georgia. Many of you have followed Charles Stanley for decades, and some Andy. But Andy has changed a lot of his beliefs over the years. He's, he's gotten sideways a bit with some things. And this may be the biggest shift. It's called Unconditional. His keynote speaker is a man by the name of Justin Lee. Justin Lee is openly gay and in a male a relationship with a man, openly. 
And so if he stood before you today, he'd say, I am boldly Christian and completely gay and active in his gay lifestyle. And Andy brought him in as the keynote speaker for this conference. That's, by the way, sold out. Now, that, that's disturbing to me. But what was most disturbing is I watched an 8-minute and 21-second video of Justin Lee, and 100% about it was about his glory, not God's glory. I, I watched it twice, just to be fair. He never said the word of Jesus. He never quoted a scripture. He never talked about the glory of God, the commands of God, the truth of God. He never talked about sin or repentance in eight and a half, in eight and a half minutes. Plenty of opportunity to proclaim the glory of God. But he did say these things. He said things like, I'm just telling my story. I'm just sharing what I've been through. And his kind of ethos for this particular talk was, curiosity is what motivates us to reach people and convince them to change their views. So be curious. Let me just rephrase this. He says, I'm just telling my story. Christians, we're told to tell God's story. He says, it's what I've been through. We're supposed to talk about what Jesus has been through. And curiosity is what motivates him. But let me tell you what motivates us. The gospel of Jesus Christ is what motivates us to reach people and call them to repentance and faith. When I watch that, I see a man extolling his glory and his right to do whatever he wants. And we don't have that right as Christians. We surrender that right. And although we're going to struggle with sin and temptation, no doubt we all do. We have to yield on behalf of God's glory to God's word. Now, let's go back to our Jewish people here, the leaders, the scribes. He's going to expose what we're just going to call very simply their religious hypocrisy. He tells it with, does it with a bit of an example of what was going on in those times. He says, has not Moses given you the law? Let none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? By the way, that, I don't want to say that's passive aggressive, but uh, has not Moses given you the law? And it's like, a, like, yet none of you keeps the law. And then he just keeps talking. Like if you tell those people none of you keeps the law, that is a strong rebuke. And by the way, they don't because they cannot, Romans tells us. They cannot, and neither can you. It's why Christ came. So why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? And Jesus answered them this way. I did one work, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers. And you circumcised a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made man's whole body well? Do you understand the comparison here? First he's saying you can't keep the law. But what we're having an argument over here is why you're calling me a demon is that you go in and you do an outward, visible, physical sign, a ritual rite of circumcision. And he's not even saying it's wrong. He's not rebuking the act of circumcision. It was the way they showed their relationship to God. It was, a, it was a cutting that says we're of the people of God as opposed to not. And so he, he didn't even go down that road. What he's trying to say is you want these outward physical manifestations of religiosity. I'm making a whole man's life whole. 
I'm taking a human being and making them whole. And you're arguing with that. Do you see the hypocrisy in what you're doing? And they didn't, of course. And he said this, do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Let me say it this way. The right judgment is not reflected in what we see on the outside. In that case, circumcision. But right judgment is examining the inward transformation of the heart. And that's what I want from you and you want from me. I don't want you to judge me on the outside. I want you to see an inward examination of my heart. I want you to know me and find out what I believe. I want you to know me and find out as I have a repentant heart, a heart that's, that's yielded to the Word of God. And if not, I need you to speak to my heart to call me to repentance and faith. Amen? That's what we look toward. We're all going to look different on the outside. Generationally speaking, as we go through generations, every generation struggles with the younger generation. Just as your parents one day struggled with you. You dressed the ways they didn't want you to dress. You listened to music they didn't like you listening to. Well, today, we have classes down the hall where half the people in there have tattoos. And so we can judge their outward appearance. And some of them are wearing clothing that we wouldn't ascribe to. So we can judge their outward appearance, but we need to be a body of Christ that looks at the inward life of the heart. The outside will take care of itself. You know, Matthew 6, 1, he says, Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others by, to be seen by them, as we described earlier. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. And then he gives a strong rebuke in verse 27 of chapter 23 in Matthew. Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! You're like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of bones of the dead and everything unclean. He's begging them, begging them to drop the robes and where you sit and, 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 and putting such a high level toward circumcision and say, we need to be looking deep in our hearts to see if there's transformation there or if we're just whitewashed tombs. Just dead people walking around with clothing on the outside makes us look alive. And we see it all the time. At the Shabbat two years ago when we were there, sweet lady, she's sharing us all. We really just came to listen and to learn. It was very fascinating and their practices. And so we just, we just listened. And she was very effusive and she shared a lot of things. And multiple times she would say, I think I counted three, where she said, um, we're all about legalism. That, that was her... Her statement, we're all about legalism. She goes, in fact, and she chuckled, she was wearing a proper head covering. She goes, but now we have Orthodox Jewish women who go out and buy beautiful flowing blonde wigs to cover their dark hair, and they justify it as a head covering. Now, that's what will happen if we live according to outward laws. Eventually, we will change our clothing. We'll do whatever we have to do to, to somehow earn the favor of those in the people around us and those in our religion, even if it is covering our dark hair with a blonde wig and saying that is our head covering. Oh, how I want them to hear. I just, I was on the edge of my seat. I wanted to share with her the head covering of Christ. Is she going to have a blonde wig or not a wig or a hat or bald head? It doesn't matter. Through Christ, we have a head covering. That is our hope for our Jewish friends. Verse 25. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly. And they say nothing to him. Can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? 
But we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They had him figured out. We know where he comes from. But they didn't know where he came from. They didn't fully know. One of my favorite questions to ask to get to know people is their country of origin. Where did you come from? So Samuel came from, now he was introduced as Rwanda. My friends in Uganda just say Wanda. Is that right? Some do? Some do. Those Ugandans, they probably, that's probably the ones who do. But they'd always say Wanda. And I was like, what are you talking about? And they said, oh, sorry, Rwanda. But that's your country of origin. You were born and raised in Rwanda. And so he can tell that story the rest of his life. And we can know where he came from. But Jesus is going to answer a little bit a different way. And so the third thing is we're going to look at the authority of his sentness. And so you can write that word down. We probably hijacked a couple of words to create it, but now it's being used often. Sometimes with the hyphen in the middle, sometimes not. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, you know me and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. So you know I came from this place, but not of my own accord. He who sent me is true and him you do not know. I know him for I come from him and he sent me. I want you to understand, when we read that today as Christians, it seems to make perfect sense to us. Like we just go, oh yeah, I know he's talking about God, and God sent him in the world, and virgin birth, and we just put it all together. Can you imagine that sentence 2,000 years ago to people who didn't know? I mean, that, that's otherworldly what he's speaking there, because he is otherworldly. And he's trying to help them understand, I come from God, and God sent me. And so we see a couple things here. Jesus is the sent and the sender. And not on his own accord. He's sent by God. And they didn't know God. That's the shocking thing about this statement. He's speaking to them and said, the reason you don't understand what I'm saying is you don't know him. Which is why they hated him. So we ask the question, why the word sentness? Well, the word mission comes from a Latin word meaning to send. And so Jesus, the missionary, was sent and the one who sends missionaries, that's Jesus again, is the sender. So he was sent by God and he's sending us into the world. And so I want to take just a minute as we look at this. When you think about this idea of sending, obviously it's rooted here. Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, so I'm sending you. And that was very clear to his disciples. So I'm, God sent me, I'm sending you, and he's still doing that. It's really a description of who we are. We are, you can say we are a sent people or we have sentness as a character about who we are, a trait of who we are. And we are on mission with God's gospel. My friend's mother is 91 years old. She lives in assisted living. Sweet lady. Well, if I said her name, some of you would know it. It's Lois Marie Freeman, Reverend Richard M. Freeman's wife. Lois is 91. I was with Kirk last night, her son. And uh, she was kind of saying, I'm ready to go to heaven. And he said, he said, Mama, he said, it's not time for you to go to heaven. He said, you, you still have people to pray for. You have people to love. You have people to be kind to. And you're so sweet in your words of affirmation. And Lois, in all her sweetness, in her desire to go to heaven, she goes, well, maybe I just won't be as nice anymore. You know, <laughs> and uh, she's desperately trying to get to heaven. But she knows, she knows she's on mission here on this earth for these 91 years. She hasn't lost her sentness about her wherever she is. So we never need to lose that. Let me tell you a couple things about this idea of mission. 
Three ways we look at this word. Mission is the total redemptive purpose of God to establish his kingdom. That's what mission is. But missions, with an S on the end, is the activity of God's people, the church, to proclaim and to demonstrate the kingdom of God in the world. So that's the calling of the church. But let's take it down one more level to missionaries. Missionaries are set apart by God and the church to cross natural and cultural barriers with the gospel. The uniqueness about missionaries is that they are literally crossing over what are natural and kind of cross-cultural barriers to get the gospel to new places. And so we send them out. And some of you are sent out to places even in Waco. And some of you have been sent out into the world. You've traveled. You've gone on mission trips. You've been a missionary, perhaps. And this is what Jesus was saying. He's like, I'm the first, he's the first really missionary that we see, right? Sent and now sending people. The author here, Avery Willis, sums this up this way. Mission, therefore, is conceived as the total redemptive purpose of God to establish his kingdom. And missionaries are those agents who carry out God's redemptive purposes through the church. I think Jesus, in his teaching, was constantly trying to help them understand, I was sent, and now I'm sending. And I want to send you out with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Of course, he did send out people into all the world. Uh, if, you're, if you're kind of stuck on this word and curious about it, there is a book titled Sentness, um, Six Postures of Missional Christians. And in that book, there was this short phrase, the church was meant to be on its feet. Thank you for having a stand earlier. Meant to be on its feet in the world, making all things new. The church was meant to be sent. And I think that's what Jesus is trying to convey. I want you to have this spirit of sentness, this, this sentness about you, just as I have a sentness about me. As I was sent from my Father, I send you into the world. There's so much more to be said about one particular passage. I want to go to verse 30. As we get close to this end of the authority of his future in just a second. In verse 30 he said this, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour, remember, had not yet come. So he's still speaking in private. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? Did you catch that? Many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, but he had appeared. This was him. So they're still wondering, will he do more? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about them. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And of course, he, he got away. They did not arrest him at that time. So what I want to look to in these next few words is just the authority of his future. Verse 35, the Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that he will not find him? That we will not find him. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me? And where I am, you cannot come. It's that last phrase that throws me off a little bit, but let's get to that in a second. You will seek me and you will not find me. You will seek me. And the reason you won't find me, it's not because I won't be over the dispersion, it's because I'm going to be at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. I'm going to ascend to heaven. Now, we know that. And we know that, that we, the, the calling we have in part of the, the gospel is to say, do you know Jesus ascended into heaven? He sits at the right hand of God the Father. And we want you to be there as well when he returns. That's where we want you to be, and that's where he's going. He's speaking prophetically, of course, about his ascension at Pentecost. 
And he's saying, basically, you can't come at Pentecost. I'm going to go away and leave my spirit. And we can stop it there and just say, you're going to want to go then, but you can't go then. You're going to stay here because you have sentness about you and go into all the world to share the gospel. And so there's going to be a divide. The disciples are going to yearn for him. They're going to be longing and wishing he hadn't left in a sense. And of course, he gives us his Holy Spirit. All these things begin to unfold. But at that moment, he's saying to them, look, I'm going to go somewhere. And, and you're not going to be able to go at that moment. But I think you, have to, you, you can't help but have to spread this out a little bit further. Is he talking about at this moment you can't come? Or is this a prophetic judgment on their destiny to say, some of you, you cannot come. You, you won't be in heaven with me. Those are hard words. But they're hard words of Jesus. He actually said, no one comes to the Father except through me. In other words, some of you aren't going to ever accept me. Unfortunately, we know that people went to their grave hating Jesus, not following him. And he knew. This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He even steps it up again. The one who sent me grants eternal life. And I think at the same time, he's speaking this prophetic word of knowing what's going to happen. There has to be this brokenness, this, this sorrow that he had, right? In his heart, knowing and grieving, in a sense, for people being far from him. Jesus knows his future. He speaks about it authoritatively. He knows where he's going. He knows his heavenly father. He knows where his words came from. He knows his timing. He knows his purpose to go and be sent into the world and make disciples. And so when we read this, we could stop here and we could reverse back to verse 1. And some of you could pick up from there and reteach this over and over again and just unpack the treasure trove of teaching from verse 1 to 36. In fact, I want to challenge you all a little bit. And I think it's great when classes do kind of a sweeping overview and, and cover large passages at a time. But I think we have to be careful, too, that we don't train our current generation of Christians that that's how we study the Bible. That we don't say, well, we're going to cover in 20 minutes chapter 10 of Matthew. It's like, what? What, what, what? No, no. It might be that you need to step a step back and go, Jay, you said something. Let's just pick one of these. Well, let's start from the beginning. I won't do it right now, but verses 6, 7, and 8. There is an entire sermon. There's an hour of teaching in 6, 7, and 8. Verses 6, 7, and 8. Not chapters. Verses 6, 7, and 8. I'll never forget one of my favorite pastors. He said, I like to take a passage in the Bible and I like to just drill down. I like to just drill down and understand and unpack the beauty and the joy and the teaching and the conviction that comes from the Word of God. And so while we're here today and we're doing an overview, we're trying to capture these truths as they pour out from us, I just want to exhort you to always be sure and pause. And it's okay if it takes time. I have a friend that he was asked by someone in his church. He said, hey, are you doing the daily reading, the Bible in a year program with our church? And he says, no, I'm not doing that. He said, what, what do you mean you're not doing that? Don't you read the Bible every year in a year? Like, do you read? He said, no, I don't. He said, I've read through the Bible many times. But right now I'm resting in, I think he said Jonah. I'm resting in Jonah and I'm just living there, unpacking everything. Now, some might say, well, that sounds kind of prideful. He didn't mean it as prideful. What he meant was, I love the Word of God. I like all the Word of God. But there are moments I want to pause and go deep. And one of the things you do when you, when you do that, you start unpacking both the truths like this, the authoritative statements, but also the implications. 
And so let me just pause here, just give you four implications I think come from this. I want to exhort you in this as you move away, because we also want to guard against just hearing something and going, that's good, that's true. You know, I'm glad I know that. So to know, but I want you to know it deep in your heart. First thing is this, four implications for us today. First, we'll start with this passage, the Great Commission. In fact, turn to Matthew 28, 18, because I think this makes a connector for us. Because keep in mind, this is that, that what we've been studying is at the beginning, the early part of his ministry, right? And what we're going to look at here is the end of it. And this is where our implications kind of are tied together. So in Matthew 28, most of you have heard this, know it. Verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Four sentences. Jesus knew when his time had come, and now our time has come to proclaim his gospel to the world. He knew and when his time was, had come, he did his work. And he's leaving here and saying, now your time has come to go into the world and spread the gospel. The second implication for us today is that Jesus spoke his words with authority and now we can speak the word with his authority because he said, all authority has been given to me. Now, go and make disciples. He knew we were going to teach. He knew we were gonna, the word of God was going to be put together. The, the, the canonization of scripture was going to happen. And he knew we were going to do it. He knew we were going to be right here. He said, I'm giving you authority to take the Word of God and teach it boldly and faithfully. And the third implication for us, Jesus was sent into the world to redeem us, and now we are sent to be missionaries of redemption. You can reduce the sentness term down to one word, go. Go. Well, my friend Kirk told Lois Marie Freeman, Mom, I love you. Now go back to your assisted living center where you live, and you love it there, go and make disciples of people while you still have breath. Don't ever stop going and sending and being the sentness of the gospel. And then lastly, Jesus ascended to glory at Pentecost, and now through faith in him, we can be raised to glory. We get that from the last part of Matthew 28. I am with you always to the end of the age. And other passages in Scripture that speak about our future glorification. See, when Jesus was ascending into glory, what they didn't fully understand then is that one day they were going to ascend to glory as well. And as Christians today, one of our great joys, the way we don't get anxious about life and worry so much about life and get all worked up, is that we go, my, my life is secure. My citizenship is in heaven. If I'm in Christ, my body will be glorified. There'll be a, a whole new heaven, a new earth. It'll be incredible. So my work now is to live out the sentness of my life, the missionary work of my life. My time, your time has come. We can never say that to anybody. Well, you know, my time hasn't come. My time has come. Someone asked me the other day, said, I was at a high school reunion last night. So yesterday they said, are you still, uh, I think someone said, are you still doing that preaching thing? I think that's probably what they said. Um, and my professional answer is no. But that's not true. My professional answer is, oh no, you mean am I hired by a church to, as a job? No. And none of you are either, I don't think. 
But we don't live in the professional world. We live in the spiritual world. We live in a world that we're sent. They're equipped. We're given the Word of God. And our time is now. And whether it's standing here or wherever you live or to your children or grandchildren, I want you to live life on mission with that sentness that Jesus gave you. As he was sent into the world, then you're sent into the world. So let's just be sure and and remind ourselves that simple statement of Peter. Where else would I go? Like, there's no other place to be but with you, Jesus. I got nothing else. I have nothing else but Jesus. Let me pray for you this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for sending your son, for giving him all authority. I thank you, Father, that he bottles to us missionary life. While he was sent, he goes on sending. And Father, we thank you that his future was secure, that he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, ruling and reigning for all eternity. God, I pray that if there's anyone in this room that hasn't had their heart pierced by the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit has not brought regeneration to their heart if they haven't repented of their sins and turned to you, I pray this be the day that their time is now, Lord God, to come to you. And while many of us, maybe most of here are Christians, where we have children and grandchildren that could be far from God today, oh, let us be sent into their lives to share the gospel. Father, in everything that we do, the pains we have in our life, the sufferings, the trials, oh, let us rest in knowing that our future is secure, that we will experience glory if we are in Christ Jesus. We thank you for the beauty of your word, salvation of our lives, the joy we have in you. In your name, amen. Amen. God bless you all.